Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27. John 15, verses 18 through 27. And considering Christ's martyrs. John chapter 15, verse 18. Give attention to God's holy word. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is to hear the voice of the Son of God. And it is to hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit that we have gathered this evening. And we, as we come before you, Lord, confess that we are but of the dust with feet of clay and broken, leaky vessels. And so we ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would bless our time, strengthening us, anointing us, and filling us with your Holy Spirit that we might indeed hear the voice of the Son of God. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the beginning of God's great work, when he first published the gospel, he declared war. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Genesis 3, 15. The enmity which was begun by God is between the devil and Christ, the flesh and the spirit, the world and the church. But this enmity is one-sided, as it were. Christ and the spirit, as we know through much of Scripture, compel the church to love her enemies, while at the same time the church should expect hatred in return. This is to be expected on the part of all Christians. And it is normal for a Christian ministry. Many in our day have forgotten this truth. Many today profess Christ and expect the world to love them for it. You hear statements like this in our assemblies. 
I've heard it in our own assembly. It's been said in the assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. The world is watching what we're doing. An obsession with public relations, optics, trying to do the work of God without causing offense to the worldly are all symptoms of this spiritual amnesia. You you see this in, in most ministries in the world today, don't you? But Christ, by His example and His doctrine, reminds us of what we have forgotten. The world hates Christ. The world hates Him. The world hates Christ because it does not know the Father. And the world, in spite of all of its hatred, is still confounded by the testimony of the Spirit to the truth of Christ. What we're going to see in this passage is that Christ teaches us to expect the world's hatred. Now he does so to forewarn us. You remember the context of this passage all the way back in John 14. Christ is leaving the disciples. Christ is getting ready to go to the cross and they are going to be left on the earth. Their friend, their savior, their guide and their teacher is going to be taken away from them. And so Christ is forewarning them. This is what will happen after I go. As they say, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. The Christian life is a warfare. And the enemy is the world. It is coming for you. Are you ready? By the grace of Christ, as we look at this passage, we will be. Specifically, what we're going to see in this passage is that the world's hatred for God is directed at Christ and His ministers, comes from ignorance of the Father, and is confounded by the witness of the Spirit. I know that's a mouthful, so I'll say it again. The world's hatred for Christ, uh, hatred for God, pardon me, is directed at Christ and His ministers. It comes from ignorance of the Father, And it is confounded by the testimony or the witness of the Spirit. In this passage, there are three things. Verses 18 through 20 is the world and Christ. Verses uh, 21 through 25 is the world and the Father. And verses 26 and 27 is the world and the Spirit. Verses 18 through 20, the world and Christ Verses 21 through 25, the world and the Father. And verses 26 and 27, the world and the Spirit. So we begin with verse 18, the world and Christ. Now we need to have a definition of the world before we can understand what Christ is speaking about here. And so here's a good definition for the world. The world is the sum total of human rebellion against God. It is the kingdom of Satan 
where his will holds sway. Its members, those that belong to the world, are all those who walk according to the flesh. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul gives us a great summary definition of the world. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. I'm starting in verse 1. You he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom we also all once had conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You notice how Paul describes the world. It is this present evil age, under the sway of the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the mind. This is the world. Now, we need to have even more definition. Fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the mind doesn't simply mean doing nasty things that are distasteful. In the New Testament, when the lusts of the flesh are spoken about, the the principle of the flesh is rebellion, but it's a specific kind of rebellion. It's rebellion against the law of God. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Paul is describing this warfare between flesh and spirit. Romans 7, he's described the warfare in the heart of a believer. And as he wrestles with this warfare, he realizes how wicked of a man he is, but then he thanks God through Jesus Christ that it's through him we are delivered. And then Paul begins to describe more fully this warfare in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, it's another way of talking about the flesh, carnally minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why is the carnal mind death? Look at verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Nor uh, uh, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what the world is. Those who live according to the flesh and rebel against God's commandments. Now you might say at this point, let me just clarify something. You might be saying to yourself, well, pastor, I've sinned against God's law all the time. Here's the difference. 
All of us carry sin with us. Those who are still in the flesh feel no guilt. Those who are still in the flesh have no remorse and no repentance for their sins. For to be subject to the law of God means to agree with the law of God that my sins are wicked and that they deserve death. And those who are subject to the law of God flee to Christ to make them right in the eyes of the law. So the fact that we sin doesn't mean we walk according to the flesh. Those who walk according to the flesh are not subject to the demands of the law. But the life of the Spirit, as Paul describes in Romans 7, those who are of the Spirit are radically subject to the demands of the law. So much so that they flee to Christ for salvation. And so those who are not subject to the law of God cannot please God. Well, we've talked about one side of the definition. What does the world actually mean? What's the category that Christ is speaking about? Now we need to add a little bit more to our definition. The world is not just those who are outside the visible church. The world is not just those who do not practice the Christian religion. This is a very common mistake. It's a very common mistake in our day. Many theologies are out there and many people go through life thinking there's the church and the world. And that the visible church is not the world. The world can be inside and outside of the church. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing. Starting in verse 17. Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now when Paul uses the idea of walking... This is a very common way of talking about walking the Christian life, walking in a way that's in conformity outwardly with God's commandments. But notice what he says in verse 18, for many walk, many are on the path of whom I have told you often and tell you now, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul's describing the world, and he's describing the world in the midst of the visible church. This is also what Jeremiah says in chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25. Part of God's judgment upon Israel the visible church of that day, part of the reason for his massive judgment upon Israel was that though outwardly they were the visible church, inwardly they were no better than Canaanites. They were just as worldly in the heart. Look at what he says in verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab. Interesting. 
The nation of Judah is put in the middle of that list of those pagan nations. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, all who are in the farthest corners, who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised. They are outside of the visible church. And the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. They walk according to the flesh, though they are part of the visible church. So the world is not just those who are outside of the visible church. It is all those who walk according to the flesh. If you pay careful attention to Scripture and church history, it's often the bitterest enemies of Christ that come from the visible church. Paul writes in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, as he's leaving the Ephesian elders for the last time. He says, after I depart, I know that ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Yes, even from among your own number, men will rise up drawing disciples, speaking perverse things inside the visible church. John Calvin, when he comments on the crucifixion of Christ, he, he says this in Matthew's gospel. This is Calvin's commentary on Matthew 26, 57. Remember that Christ was brought in front of the high priest and the whole council. Here, a frightful and hideous spectacle is placed before our eyes. For nowhere else than at Jerusalem was there at that time either a temple of God or lawful worship or the face of the church. The high priest was a figure of the only mediator between God and men. Those who sat along with him in the council represented the whole church of God. And yet all of them unite in conspiring to extinguish the only hope of salvation. So when Christ says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, he's not speaking about visible church and outside of the visible church. He's speaking about those who walk according to the flesh, even within the visible church. Never forget, it was the church that crucified Christ. The priests and the Pharisees. So Christ says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He moves on then in verse 19 to talk about the reason for the world's hatred. Why does the world hate Christ? And why does the world hate Christ's people? One reason. You have God's favor and they don't. The world hated Christ because he was the only beloved of the Father. The world hates Christians because the Father's love and grace is present in your life. Look at what he says in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But praise the Lord, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. That is sovereign, electing grace. And because God has given you his grace... The world hates you. Not only does this election deliver us from the world, but it also regenerates us. Those whom Christ saves, he brings them out of the world and he also changes their heart. Just as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you once were one of these worldly people. You once walked according to the lusts of the flesh, doing the will of Satan your king, but God delivered you. God brought you out of the world and by grace you have been saved and he has now exalted you and caused you to be one who walks 
by the Spirit. Well, what does all of this produce? God's election, regeneration of His people. It produces a love for the Father instead of a love for self. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he describes this. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he exhorts the people. Very similar to what Joshua said to the nation as they were gathered as he's about to die. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice that love of the world and love of the Father are exclusive categories. You can't have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You either have the love of the world or the love of the Father. And those who have been delivered from the world have the love of the Father. Listen to what he says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, self-centered loves, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, never forget, it is by grace that you are not a part of the world. If you have been born again and seek to walk according to the Spirit, it is by grace that God has delivered you from this world. Now this means two very important things. One, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the spiritual mind is life and peace. Life and peace with God. The Almighty is your Father. The King, the Lord Jesus, is your brother. The Holy Spirit is your helper who goes alongside of you. To be saved from the world means life and peace with God. But it also means strife and war with the world. If you have been saved, and if you would live as one who has been saved, there is no option. You must go to war with the world. Because the world is at war with you. Christ not only describes the reason for the world's hatred, he also describes the effects. Back in John 15 now. It says, the world hates you because it hated me. It hates you because I have saved you out of the world by my grace. And it also produces two effects. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they received my word, they will receive your word also. Now in this context, he's speaking to the disciples as ministers of the church. He's preparing them for their apostolic ministry. That's why he says, receiving your word as public teachers of the church. Uh, So there's two effects here. Persecution. The world's hatred for Christians will produce persecution. The Greek word here that's translated persecution, it means to hound, to pursue, to prosecute, to follow after, to hunt down. If you've ever seen on the African plain uh, where there's an, an antelope or some injured animal and the hyenas or the lions are chasing this animal down with bloodlust, waiting to devour this animal, that's what the word means. 
The world hunts after Christ and his people like a wolf or a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You remember Paul's description of his life before he was converted. He persecuted the church. Saul, as he was going after David, he persecuted and hunted David wherever he could find him. That's what persecution is. But we need to understand what persecution means. Turn to Luke 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke 6 verse 20. If the world hunts you like it hunted Christ, that means you taste like Christ. Persecution is a sign of honor to the church. Listen to what Christ says. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Indeed, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. The persecution of the world is a sign of honor to the church. It means that the church is actually acting like Christ. Well, not only is persecution one of the effects of the world's hatred, salvation of the elect is also one of the effects. Return to John 15. At the end of verse 20, he says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. You know the stories of the martyrs throughout history, the Roman martyrs, as they were uh, brought into the arena and cast to the lions and said, confess the emperor as God. And they would say, no, we can't do that. And they would die for their faith. And the people in the crowds looked at that and said, what kind of God is this? And they were converted, seeing the, the faithfulness of the martyrs. John Tyndall, you may know the story, the, the, one of the early translators of the English Bible. He was arrested, executed in England, and his dying prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That prayer was opened. Even to this day, in the coronation of a British monarch, they confess to be a Christian kingdom. They may not live up to it, but at least they still confess it. Look at Mark 15. The hatred of the world produces salvation for the elect. Mark 15, verses 37 through 39, in the very death of Christ, as the world had, as it were, gotten victory over him temporarily. Verse 37, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The world's persecution and hatred resulted in that centurion converting as he saw Christ die. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 The reason is very simple. They who desire to live godly 
lives deny themselves while the world exalts itself. They who desire to live godly seek the will of God. The world seeks its own will. They who are godly in Christ Jesus love the Father above all. The world loves itself above all. 1 Peter 4, he describes what this kind of suffering is. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is He who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready. Uh, That's chapter 3. Same theme, but wrong reference. 4.12. Beloved, do not think it strange. There we go. Concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. Uh, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. If the world hated Christ, it will hate you. But this is no reason to be discouraged. This is a sign of honor for God's people. Well, the world not only hates Christ, the world also hates the Father. In 21 through 25, now we see the world And the Father, Christ, in verse 21, tells us why this is. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Christ says that the world hates Christ and his people. They don't know the Father. They're ignorant of God. They don't know what God is like. They don't know that Jesus came to bear witness. And what this means is that the world sees no higher authority than their own lusts. But the testimony of Christ is to a higher Lord than human lust, human desire, the desires of the flesh. The testimony of Christ is that God the Father is, and He will judge the world in righteousness. It is a testimony to the Father, the judge of all. And in light of this testimony, the sin of the world is exposed. He continues in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Then he says in verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. Hatred for Christ as the testimony of righteousness is hatred for the Father, righteousness Himself. By His works, Christ has fully proven that He came from the Father. This is a common theme in this section of John's uh, Gospel. Just one other reference, 1410. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? 
The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So Christ references the works as the proof of his ministry, the proof of his deity, and that the Father had sent him. Because the world sees Christ and knows who he is, there is now no excuse for their sin. There's no excuse for the sin that they live in. Testimony against sin is one of the chief reasons that Christ came. It is also one of the chief elements of gospel ministry. Several references I could point you to. Micah 3.8, Isaiah 58.1, Acts 24.25, Paul is reasoning with Festus, and it says there that he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, and it said Festus trembled at this teaching. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first, the, the first martyr of the Christian church, as he comes to the end of his sermon, he's preaching a barn burner, and the people are stirred up, they're pricked to the heart, because Stephen says to them, you always resist the Holy Ghost. Which prophet have you not murdered? And then they murdered him. Acts chapter 2, Peter is testifying against their sins. He says, you by wicked hands crucified the Lord. But why? Why is this a chief element of gospel ministry? Many would think that to point out sin is not loving. To point out sin doesn't make the world happy. It doesn't bring the people in. The reason sin needs to be testified against is so that you can be saved. Sin is what's killing you. And Christ comes and testifies, this is sinful, but in me is your salvation. That's why sin and testimony against it is such an important part of gospel ministry. Peter closes his sermon in Acts 2.40, and he says, be saved from this perverse generation. So the world hates Christ because he testifies of the Father's righteousness. But that's not all. Notice what he says in verse 25. This happened, their hatred for Christ and rejection of his testimony, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Marvel of marvels. This is the wisdom of heaven. In the Father's eternal plan... The world's hatred was part of the plan. The world's rejection of Christ was part of the whole scheme of redemption. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about the gospel ministry. And he says this in verse 18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the academic? Where is the philosopher? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the wisdom of heaven, that the world's hatred was part of God's plan. Paul says this in Romans, <laughs> pardon me, Romans 11, verses 32 through 36. Listen to what Paul says. God has committed all of them to disobedience, Jew and Gentile, so that he might have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the ridges, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, including the hatred of the world. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how do we apply this section. 1 Peter 2, again, speaks to us about these things. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. I'm just going to read it. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this... You were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so the world's hatred for the Father doesn't disturb the Father's plan. It was, in fact, all part of the Father's plan the whole time. Well, now we turn to the world and the Spirit. That's where Christ goes now in verses 26 through 27. Christ says in verse 26, but when the helper comes. Notice that there's a slight change here. He says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They hate me because they hate the Father. But when the Holy Spirit comes, who I will send in the name of the Father, He will testify of me. Try though they might, the world cannot snuff out the light of the gospel. With all the arms and all the power of the flesh, with their ultimate weapon, murder and taking the life of the Lord of glory, with all of their weapons, they cannot snuff out the light of the gospel. All the world can do is rage against the testimony of the Spirit, which is irresistible. The word here in Greek, he will testify of me. It's the Greek word that we get the word martyr from. The word martyr simply means a witness. It means to bear testimony. And what Christ is saying is that 
this Holy Spirit will testify to me. We see this exemplified in Stephen at the end of his sermon. He says to the Jews that are gathered, verses 51 through 60, He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Notice, the testimony of the Spirit is irresistible. They are cut right to the conscience by what Stephen is saying, But notice what they do. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. You see the rage. They're like wild beasts looking to devour this lamb. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him with stones. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice how Stephen wars. The world will hate you. But you're not allowed to hate the world. Look at what Stephen says. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. Lord Do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. As he's being murdered by the hatred of the world, he prays for their forgiveness. This is what I said earlier on, that this enmity is one-sided as it were. We should expect the world to hate us. But we are not allowed to hate the world in return. We should testify to the world of the truth of Christ, as Stephen did by the power of the Spirit, but we are not to hate them. We are to pray for them as Stephen does. Do not charge them with this sin. Christ says not only will the Holy Spirit testify... Verse 27, you also will bear witness. Same word in Greek. You also will be martyrs, witnesses, because you've been with me from the beginning. The friends of Christ, the ministers of Christ, the people of Christ also testify being filled with the Spirit. Paul the Apostle describes this ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 17, uh, pardon me, verse 14. Thanks be to God, Um, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing among those who receive our word and among those who persecute us. We are the aroma of Christ. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. 
To one we are the aroma of judgment against sin, for Christ has been crucified for sin. To the other we are the aroma of life leading to life, because Christ has died for us and risen again. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, trying to make friends with the world with the word of God. But as of sincerity and as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And so Paul speaks about this testimony and what it means to bear witness to Christ. So here's a question. What is a successful gospel ministry? What is the most effective way to witness to Christ? Revelation 12 tells us, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accursed them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. A successful gospel ministry is one in which the testimony of Christ is fully, clearly, and spiritually proclaimed. It is one in which the world hears the voice of the Son of God and they rage. It is one in which the elect hear the voice of the Son of God and they rejoice. It is one wherein Christ's friends become Christ's martyrs by word and by death. That's the definition of witnessing for Christ. The effects are not up to us. All that is up to us is faithfulness to the testimony. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the testimony of Christ and that you diffuse the aroma of Christ in every place where you send your ministry. We pray, O Lord, that it would be the aroma of life unto life for us. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we, like Stephen, might look and see heaven opened and the glory of God and Christ standing at his right hand. And may you fill us with the love of Stephen that even when he was being murdered, he prayed that you would not charge them with this sin. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.